them. First two are okay.
Good morning. Let's go over a couple of announcements together. Uh, evening service tonight, Sunday school, is that? It's canceled again. Okay. The teacher is sick. Okay. And as you notice, we have no piano player today. So we're going to be doing an a cappella. The, bless, the blessing is, I'm not leading it. So. Thank you for your support. Okay, do we have any updates on the Lewis's? Terry? I, I uh, texted Robin Ross, which is a friend of their daughter's, and said that their, his test came back all fine. So they're just home resting comfortably, let's hope. I guess that's third and fourth hand information. <laughs> okay, and Tom Roth, I don't see him here. You don't know anything how he's doing? Okay. Well, we're happy to see some visitors here today, so hopefully that uh, you'll be able to, after the service, mingle with them a little bit and talk and, and uh, make them feel welcome. Okay, any other uh, prayer requests or praises? Okay, I will direct you to our scripture for meditation taken from the book of First Kings chapter 7 and that'll be verses 1 through 12 in your pew bible it'll be page 
you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? George, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, how we do thank you today for this opportunity to be in your house and to hear the word of God given. We pray for Jared and for others who uh, are sick or perhaps laid up for whatever reason. And we pray that you would watch over them and your hand of uh, blessing be upon them. We ask, Lord, that you would help us today as we seek to worship you. Cause us, Lord, to focus on the things of Christ and to remember all of your blessings to us as your children. Bless this day and bless your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Remain standing. Well, it's not going to be quite a cappella. Hannah's going to come up and help. And I'm going to sit here. We'll get a little bit of help. Come on up, Hannah. So we take your um, red hymnals and turn to number 646 in the red trinity.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, and that'll be page 1617 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. 
When you come to that, please stand with us. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him this parallel. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat drink and be merry but God said to him you fool this very night your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God father in heaven we pray your blessing upon this reading that your word would move in the hearts of the lost, but be a comfort to those of us that were within your grasp. Bless this hour. Bless this reading. In the name of Christ. Amen. If you all will turn with me again to uh, 432 in the hymnal. In the brown, sorry. 432.
turn the heat down, so we'll see. Okay, we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah. It's too hot. Let me know. Turn the fans on. Yeah, or vent the windows a little. Our scripture text is Luke 12, beginning at verse 13. Our last study in the gospel Jesus preached concerned the story of the good neighbor. Some call this the story of the Good Samaritan, because he was a Samaritan. The prologue to the parable centered around a question asked of Jesus by an expert of the law. And the question being, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke tells us that this question was to test Jesus. In other words, it was not a question for information's sake, but for the purpose of entrapping Jesus in some kind of moral dilemma. Jesus took control of the conversation by asking his own question. What's written in the law, Jesus said. How do you see it? The lawyer gave the summation of the law. Well, that we're to love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind and the second uh, part of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself Jesus replied you have answered correctly do this and you will live well the man knew what he should do that was not a problem but he had no power to implement what he knew. God does promise life to all who obey his law perfectly, but none on earth, none since Adam, except Jesus, can claim that promise. This is why we need God's grace and God's mercy in salvation. The lawyer knew he had not obeyed the law, but seeking to justify his disobedience, he asked Jesus, a further explanation. Well, what is meant by neighbor? And what followed was Jesus' story of the man who fell among robbers and was stripped of his possessions and beaten with many blows and left half dead along the road. Three travelers came along, the first two a priest and a Levite, and they just walked on by. The third was a despised Samaritan, half-breed. And he bandaged the despised, or the, the broken-hearted man, took him to an inn, paid for his night's care, and went on his way. The point being made that you and I are not passive in our sin. Sin is something we do deliberately. Like the Levite. Like the priest who passed by and didn't do anything. 
Mercy in us is a sign that we have received mercy from God. Today's study brings us to the account of the rich fool found in Luke 12. As we have seen with so many of these stories which depict the kingdom of God, there is something which provokes Jesus to tell them. I mean, he's not just a traveling storyteller. No, the stories stand to illustrate some propositional truth that he has given in his teaching. And that's no less the case in our account today when he deals with another parable. So, as we come to our study, let's ask for God's enablement. Our Father, we thank thee for the privilege of gathering at least once a week, twice a week, as many as any church wants to meet because our country is free. And we're thankful for that. There are places in the world right today where this is not allowed. And we ought to thank you daily for the fact that religious freedom is part one of our constitutional bill of rights. And not guaranteed necessarily by the Constitution, but by Almighty God. So we pray that you will teach us. That's why we're here. If we knew everything about God, we wouldn't have to meet. But we don't know everything about you. We only know what you reveal to us in the Holy Scriptures. So be our teacher, we pray, and bless your word. Be with those that are ill and, or away and can't make it. Pray you'll watch over them, bring them back safely. In Jesus' name, amen. In our text, we have a question from the crowd. Jesus had been teaching a large crowd of people. Verse 1 reads, A crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another. We're familiar by looking at certain sporting events that there are of the ability of thousands of people to be gathered in one place for an event. Jesus could draw crowds of a thousand people or more. A quick check of the text reveals that Jesus was teaching on watching out for the leaven of the Pharisees, which he identifies as greed, verse 1. He taught on being bold in one's proclamation of the gospel, verse 3, on not being afraid of what men can do to us, as disciples of Christ, but fearing God, who has the power over body and soul, verse 4 and 5. He taught him the fact that God will care for us as he does the birds of the air, for we, his people, are deemed far more valuable than the sparrows, verse 6, verse 7. Jesus also warned that those who acknowledge him before men, he will acknowledge before the angels of God. But... The others who deny him will be disowned in the day of judgment and those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven at all. Verses 10, 8 through 10. And finally, our Lord instructs his disciples that they should not fear those times 
when they would be brought before the authorities to give an account of their faith, for God would give them the words of defense at that time, verse 11 and 12. So what I'm saying here is one does not have to fret over anything like that. Oh, what would I say if I were ever arrested for my faith? What if they throw me in a, in a dungeon somewhere? How would I speak before the judge? And so how would I defend myself? You don't have to worry about any of that. God gives the answers to his people when they need it. Well, anyway, these are the subjects Jesus was dealing with in his teaching. And every one of these subjects with spiritual uh, realities is watching out for hypocrisy. Not being afraid of men, but fearing God, trusting in God's care to meet our needs, and a charge not to deny Christ because of spiritual repercussions. And then, amidst all of this instruction on how to live a God-honoring, holy life on the earth, in a hostile world, some guy from the crowd hollers out, Hey, teacher, tell my brother to define the inheritance with me. I'm struck by the incongruity of that question, aren't you? Spiritual teaching all along, and this guy hollers out, Tell my brother he needs to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus has just said that no one is forgotten by God, not even the sparrow, a bird, that falls to the ground. The point being that men are worth more than many sparrows, verse 7. So God will surely not forget to care for us. And here's a fellow who is preoccupied with how much money he's missing because his brother won't divide the family inheritance with him. Shows where his real heart was. And by the way, this is not uncommon as you might think. To listen to sermons based on God's word and to be in sync with what is being said in is hard work, and our flesh doesn't much appreciate the points of application. And so people allow their minds to wander to lesser things. They count the ceiling tiles in the room. They watch the fly crawl up the back of the person in front of them. Or as in the case of this man in our story, they ponder and mull over in their minds something else in their life which they think is more important, more pressing for the moment than the word of God and the subject under consideration. Now this is different than trying to change the subject as we see with the Samaritan woman at the well to whom Jesus was zoning in concerning true worship. This was not trying to change the subject. He within his mind was thinking only of this subject. This is where his mind was. This is what consumed his thoughts. My brother won't share the inheritance. My brother won't share the inheritance. When am I going to get my cut? We would say he wasn't on Jesus' wavelength. He was distracted. He was in his own world. He never heard the subject matter that Jesus was teaching. 
His preoccupation was with the family inheritance and the fact that his brother, who must have been present in the crowd as well, was somehow cheating him out of his share. (laughs) It would be like me preaching today on the rich fool who gave no thought of the destiny of his soul. And then you walk up to me afterwards and say, Pastor, why do teenagers speed when they drive? Boing. What has that to do with the subject at hand? Nothing at all. But that's where this person's mind was during the sermon. I might be tempted to say to myself, boy, doesn't that say it all? Here for 40 minutes, I've been talking about being ready to meet God, and this guy is preoccupied with the driving habits of teenagers. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he made it clear to this questioner that judging between men and on the things of the world was not his calling. Let me read his response. He said to this guy, Man, who appointed me as a judge and as an arbiter between you? Verse 14. Again, Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 47, As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world but to save it. Now there is a judge who will set the record straight and hold responsible those that heard Jesus' teaching, and that's God the Father. But this was not Jesus' mission in life. That's what he's saying to this guy. Paul told the Corinthian church something very similar. My conscience is clear, says Paul, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4 and 5. There's a sense in which none of us are called by God to arbitrate between disputes concerning the things of this world. That was Jesus' point. His mission had nothing to do with setting up a tribunal, formal or otherwise, in which to decide cases for people having to do with earthly forms of injustice. We know from 1 Corinthians 6 that the church at large does have a judiciary role to play among our own members for the sake of maintaining equity, fairness, yes. But Paul's concern was over the fact that the Corinthian church was taking complaints to the secular courts. Oh, brother. As those those courts would have enough wise men to deal with the things that the church faces. And as if they had no idea that they would one day judge angels. It's interesting to note that although Jesus repudiated any notion that he was sent to be an arbiter 
between men on mundane matters, he nevertheless addressed this man's question. He did so directly by touching on his sin. What's his sin? Well, look at verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So this man's case against his brother is, he won't share the inheritance with me. I need my share of the goods. And Jesus basically hits his finger on the big issue, the sin issue. You, you, you want, you want. You think having possessions is going to make you happy. You think having possessions is going to give you life. When we come to Luke 12, following... You see here that Jesus is completing his very mission. The man wanted a quick decision on his share of money from an inheritance over which his brother must have been the executor of the will. It's the only thing I can figure out. He wanted money, not a sermon on greed, but our Lord is saying, in effect, your problem is greed, it's not money. You think that possessing things, material things, that you own, and the more that you're able to have those, the fuller your life will be. But you are mistaken. And you are mistaken because man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 15. It may appear that Jesus is siding with the unnamed brother who stingily kept the family inheritance all for himself. But he's not siding with that brother. Assuming that this brother was within earshot of Jesus' answer when the man from the crowd said, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's obvious that Jesus' words... and now on greed, apply equally as well to the stingy brother as to the brother asking Jesus to arbitrate. Both of these brothers have a problem with greed. The deprived brother wants what's coming to him. And the stingy brother wants to keep everything inherited from the parents for himself. There's no virtue in either of these guys. They're both consumed with the notion that having money and nice things, that's what constitutes life. They're both trying to amass as much and to keep as much for themselves as they can. Had Jesus arbitrated between them on this occasion, neither one of them would have benefited spiritually. And yet, it is in the spiritual realm 
where they are both so depleted. They are both bankrupt in their souls. They have a value system that doesn't take into account God and his providence. That brings us then, as an illustration from Jesus, to the parable of the rich fool. And this parable illustrates Jesus' propositional statement. Let me read it for you. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Well, what does he He gives this parable. The ground of a certain land baron produced a good crop. The Greek word here is euphora, from which we get euphoria, to bring forth plentifully, to yield abundantly. The commentator Hendrickson translates, the ground of a certain rich man produced bumper crops. We can understand that. It captures the essence of the text. So this was more than a good harvest. This was an exceptional harvest. This harvest even exceeded this man's present storage capacities. Because he says, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. That is, he had no place to store such a bumper crop. Verse 18 indicates he did have barns. He did. His problem was that the barns were too small to adequately house all of the produce. At this juncture, it would be wise to note that this man had several options he could have taken other than the one that he advocated, namely, I'll tear down my barn, little barns, and I'll build bigger ones. Remember, he's a rich man, so money's not an object. There are people like that. But at this juncture, he had a number of options. What he chose to do was to tear down his small barns, build bigger ones, capable to store all my grain and my goods. Verse 18. There are people who think only in this dimension. The dimension is, well, bigger is better. Bigger is better. They're like Tim Allen on the Home Improvement Show whose idea of a lawnmower is one equipped with a jet engine that can mow grass at 60 miles an hour. Others close to home than the fictitious character of TV think in similar ways. Bigger is better. So when they go shopping, got to have a TV that covers the whole south wall. They want life-size images. Their stereo speakers stand four feet tall and contain two 15-inch woofers big enough to allow you to feel the bass. 
And in this whole metamorphosis, from the mediocre to the big, the small items are torn down and discarded, perfectly good things in themselves. Like this man's smaller barns, which had served him well until this year of the bumper crop. But now with this little barns bulging at the seams, the only thing he could think of to do was, well, I'll just tear them down and the little ones will give way to bigger ones. Well, why is that the only thing he could think to do? It's because the man was consumed with greed. What are some other things he could do? Have you thought about that? Let me suggest some. He could have distributed the surplus of his crops to the poor and the needy so that they, no less than he, would have had food for their tables. Jesus taught the poor you will always have with you. There will never come a day in society when the poor are all gone because they're all being well fed, well taken care of. He could have done that. He could have acknowledged as a farmer that this bumper crop was the product of God's goodness to him. And so he could sell off the surplus, contribute the proceeds to the synagogue for charitable works. Most churches, ours included, have a benevolence fund. What's that? Well, that's special money that we take to help people that are in need. He could have done that. He had planted many times before, and his harvest had been adequate, but now plowing, seeding, fertilizing, cultivating, that same identical field in that same identical climate had yielded an exceptional harvest. What has that made? The, what difference has that made? Well, it's God's way of reporting to him and saying to him, I sent the rain, I sent the sunshine in proper proportions to keep your crops growing at this prodigious rate. There were no droughts, no floods, and for that matter, no pestilence, bugs, to destroy your crops. I did that. In other words, all the ingredients necessary for a bumper crop, God supplied to this farmer. But he didn't look at it that way. It's clear from Jesus' story that this man did not need the benefit of the surplus because Jesus called him a rich man, verse 16. He really didn't need the surplus. He was a rich man before the crop was planted and before it was harvested. He was rich enough that tearing down little barns to erect larger ones posed no financial restraints upon him. He had money to burn. He didn't need any more. Have you ever thought that God may bring surplus into your lives for the sole purpose of equipping you to help others who are less fortunate?
Is that anything that would even cross your mind to do with your money? It's a rare thing to find Christian people who think this way. Any prosperity which comes our way is usually looked upon as a boon for ourselves and our families. But of course, I mean, why would give me a, God give me a $100,000 inheritance if he didn't want me and my family to have it? Why would I get a sizable promotion at work if he didn't want my own family to benefit from the additional income? And we can find a zillion good places to put the surplus. I can liquidate my debts. But usually we incur more debts because we got more money and we buy things we don't really need. Well, we could trade in the old car. But we have a car that looks well and works well. Well, we could redecorate the house because after all, it's been three years since we put drapes over those windows. All of us may be a sign of nothing more than greed. Jesus said of this farmer, he was rich. He was rich. Let me tell you, God, I don't think God is opposed to being rich. Abraham in the scripture was rich. Job was rich. Solomon made silver in Jerusalem as plentiful as the pebbles on the street, the scripture says. That's rich. But rich or not, this farmer was consumed with greed. The Greek word for greed used by our Lord in verse 15 is a compound consisting of two words. Pleon, which means more, dealing with quantity, and echo, to have. So put it together. Greed is the desire to have more. To have more. And the desire to have more is not limited to the poor. Rich people can also desire to have more. Indeed, of the rich, it is often characteristic that what they have is never enough. I forget if it was Carnegie, the steel man, or one of the other tycoons of the early 1900s, he was asked the question anyway, how much money does it take to satisfy you? And his answer was, just a little bit more. That's a greedy heart. Rich people can also desire to have more. And indeed, the rich is often characterized that what they have is never enough. Their bank accounts would make yours and mine look ridiculous, but they still want more. 
Now, I am not maligning this man. His own actions and speech give him away. Firstly, he tore down his little barns and built bigger ones when he was already a rich farmer and he had money to spare. He didn't need bigger barns. He didn't need more storage. The surplus could have been given to those in desperate straits. Jesus taught that the poor you will always have with you, and this is the true in our day, no less than in the day of the New Testament. Because he says, the poor you will always have with you. You'll never get rid of, societies will never get rid of people that are poor. So this man could have helped in that way, but he didn't have a mind to. Secondly, his reason for doing this is revealed in the conversation he had with himself. Look at verse 19. Well, I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Why don't you... Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. That's what I'll do. I don't have to work another day. Here we learn the rationale behind this man's thinking. The reason he tore down the little barns and put up bigger ones is that he's planning to take life easy from that point on verse 19 he's not going to sweat anymore planting seed he's not going to be working in the fields anymore he's not going to harvest the crop and even if his role was simply to manage his staff and they did the work he doesn't plan to be around to do it According to his own calculations, he has, I'm reading a property of the scripture again, he has many years' worth of good things laid up in those barns. Why should he work? It's time to eat and drink and be merry. Oh, and by the way, when our government pays people in our country not to work, guess what? They don't work. They play all day. You wonder why our society has its problems. Party time! Let's play. Bring on the wine, the women, and the music. You know anything, anybody like that? Could that person be you? The people of the world are exactly of this position. The great exodus of, out of Detroit every weekend to the northern counties of the lower and upper peninsula has to do with having a good time. Drinking beer, visiting the dance bars, hooping it up with RVs, snowmobiles, and the like. 
Many people work to earn money so they can play. Why? Because play is their goal for acquiring more money. And of course, if you're going to play right, that's going to require the latest in play things, all of which are expensive. The pagan Epicureans, the philosophers of the New Testament era, taught that man was to pursue pleasure as the ultimate goal of life. They believed that the gods were afar off from man, really didn't care much about what man said or did. And so the idea of living with any realization of a personal creator was remote to their thinking. They lived for themselves and they were accountable only to themselves. They answered to no man. They answered to no God. So if they did not choose to live within the restrictions of society's mores, so what? We're having fun. Their watchword was this. Let us eat and be merry for tomorrow we die. Just hoop it up for the day and tomorrow you won't be around anyway. And by death, they assume simply cessation of life with no accountability beyond the grave. The farmer in Jesus' story obviously lived by this godless philosophy. Verse 19. No wonder he thought his bulging barns signaled party time for this life. Now note, verse 20. Excuse me. But God said to him, Excuse me. God said to him, You fool. You fool. This very night, your life, literally, the Greek says, your soul, will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You know what this verse is saying to us in our language? It's saying it this. The party is over. The party's over. And the contrast here in the scripture is really sobering. The farmer says to himself, Oh, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. I will take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what the farmer said. But God said, You're a fool. You're a fool. 
Do you know that the ultimately, the destiny of your life is not based on what you say or do? But on what God says and does. People live their lives today as though God were irrelevant. As though they had years and years to live indulging themselves in pleasure and wealth. Their life is one big party that they think will never end. God is not in their thoughts. And if they ever had a thought, a sane moment where they thought of God... God becomes the candy man in the sky to cater to their every need. People think they are immortal and that life is of their choosing and their desires. Christians can forget their vulnerability as well. When Don and I moved out here from Pennsylvania... We had in our thoughts. No, we'll pastor at Thornville for a while. You know, we haven't seen the United States. We would really like to go on from Thornville and see the Grand Canyon, the Great Teton Mountains, and some of the other Glacier Park, perhaps. Some of the wonders of the United States. Let's plan to do that, honey. What do you think? She was in. We'll do it. And then God took her away. And his lesson was, no, you won't. Man makes his plans, the scripture says, but God directs his path. And Jesus teaches us here that God has demands. He has demands. Verse 20. This very night your life will be demanded of you. So whether we live or die is God's decision. How long we live when we die is his decision. Whether we are called out of this world as a pauper with nothing in the cupboard or as a rich man with bulging barns full of the latest electronics and gadgets, none of us have a say in the matter. It is therefore the height of folly to store up things for yourselves and not be rich towards God. Verse 21. This is where man's greed will take him. This is where your greed will take you. This is where my greed will take me. Oh, and by the way, people can be greedy for things other than money. Did you know that? Some are greedy for power. Others are greedy for positions, for recognition, for honor, for popularity. Oh boy, does that play into the political realm in our day, doesn't it? Why are you running for office? Well, I, I think I have an answer for our society that I haven't seen in any other man or woman that's in office. 
But even if we were able to acquire all the things we want, Jesus says a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What are you going to do? Compare bank accounts. Aha, I have more than you. Does that change your life for the better? Or made you worse? The rich farmer in our story had it all. He had money. He had property. He had position. He had authority. He had a rosy future, devoid of work and full of play. He planned to party his life away in complete sensual abandonment. But he didn't reckon on God. He didn't. He didn't figure on God crashing his party and shutting it down. He had no notion that the party was over when God says it's over. All of this pontificating notwithstanding, in the final analysis, it wasn't what he said and did that determined his destiny. It was what God said and did. And so he was a blatant fool. Are you any wiser? Am I any wiser? Has the philosophy of the world, eat, drink, be merry, has that rubbed off on you in more ways than one? You young adults here, what's your goal in life? You plan to get a job, make a bundle of money so you can buy a new car or live in your own apartment away from parental supervision or dress in the latest fashions from the exclusive stores. Let me say, if this is you, you are on the broad road that leads to destruction, and I grant you that you will have lots of company on that road. Your friends are with you there. They want to have a good time too. They want to party into the night and into the coming years. Satisfying pleasure is all they live for. Doing what you want to do. Going where you want to go. Hanging out with the friends that you choose. That's your life. Yes, and it's also your death. You are sinking your roots deep into a world that is destined for the wrath of God. The sodomites, the fornicators, the porno stars, the drug heads, the sensual musicians, the actors of the ancient Greek and Roman world did not escape the judgment of God, and neither will you. To live life with no thought of God, with no knowledge of Him, is to be bankrupt indeed. This farmer... should have reassessed his plans. He should have thought out the consequences of a lifestyle that he was advocating. He should have reined in his greedy heart, but instead he was consumed with covetousness. 
covetousness, which is idolatry, will consume you too. God will have no other gods before him, the scripture says, not even gods of your own invention. You're the creature of God. I'm the creature of God. Everyone's the creature of God. He made us. He owns us. He holds us accountable to him. And no one in this room can successfully tell God to get lost and mind his own business. Because guess what? You are his business. Are you rich towards God this morning? That's my question. If not, it's time to repent. It's time to rethink your position and see your life through God's perspective. To all who are Christians here this morning, once upon a time God invaded your life with his life-giving grace and mercy you were full of joy and happy to be with the people of God and under the hearing of the word of God as often as you could. You studied the Bible with tenacious vigor. You grew in your understanding and spiritual things and grace towards others. God and Jesus were very important thoughts in your life. You wouldn't even make a business decision without prayer and consultation. You wouldn't move your family from one geographical location to another unless you were sure that that new location had a gospel preaching church available. You restricted the overtime demands of your employer lest somehow you would be deprived of worshiping God because he would continually wanted you to come to work on Sunday. You limited your involvement in sports and civic groups, in recreation, because you knew that these things, though not evil in themselves, could become a source of temptation to draw you, draw you, draw you away from the things of God. Obsessions. Now that was once upon a time. But as is the case so many times, the fairy tale ends. Now all of your life is consumed with the same pursuits that occupy the people of the world's energy and time. You're so busy pursuing a living that that real living is passing you by. You are like the people of God's description in the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 6. Let me read it for you. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes that are not warm. You earn wages 
only to put them in a purse with holes in the bottom. Hmm. Can you picture that? Here's a guy working his tail off, gets paid, and it wasn't paper money back then, it was coins, gold, silver. Oh, got my five shackles today. Puts them in his pocket, and they fall on the ground, and he walks away. The symbolism sometimes that God gives us in the scripture is very stunning. Very stunning. Well, God may bring you to poverty that you might be rich towards God. And if that were the case, you would be the better off for it. Our Lord, we thank you for taking care of us, supplying all of our needs in Christ Jesus. We're not paupers. We're not sitting out on the sidewalk somewhere with a cup in our hand begging for money. We do have money to buy food and groceries, pay the light bill, buy the clothes we need to wear, heat our house, so forth. But even so, that doesn't mean that we're free of greed because we might be of this man that's in this account. He always wanted more. Yeah, he had barns and they were full of produce and goods and all of that but he wanted more so he built bigger barns but nothing satisfied him and eventually life came to an end God demanded him to appear before him and all that he possessed became the property of someone else Lord, isn't that really life? I mean, whatever we have, when we're gone, we're gone, and we can't have any control. Whatever it is we loved so very much. So help us to get our eyes on God in the right way and on his grace. I ask that you will work in our hearts on this sin of greed. It can happen in many areas, as I've pointed out today. Not just money, but we could be greedy for power, greedy for recognition, greedy for honor. All the things that people of the world just, they live for this all the time. And they'll do almost anything to get get what they want. Are we like that? Are we going to end up that way? I pray not. May your spirit be our teacher. May your Holy Spirit make us holy in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 645 in Trinity. 645 in the Red Hymnal.
stand with me? Lord, we love this hymn because it shows us where our true values need to be placed. The great creator and savior of mankind. Everybody thinks they're going to die and go to heaven. Very few are realistic about eternity after death. But that is kind of self-delusion if indeed... There's been no time for God, no time to study Him, no study, no, no ability to follow Him. Just thinking that as life goes on, it's all just going to turn out okay in the end. Well, it turns out okay in the end if indeed we are subservient to the will of God. What's His will? It's that we should believe in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And seek His forgiveness for our sins. And find them satisfied in the blood of Jesus. Someone has to pay for them. Going to be us or Jesus. And I pray that we'll be wise 
that you'll grant us the faith to turn to Jesus and his holy word. Thank you for each one that's come today. Please be with the sick of our assembly. And then there are many. And we'll thank you, Lord. Amen. We are dismissed. And remember, there's no evening service.